Church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like you to find the brief letter of the Apostle Paul called Colossians. And when you find the book of Colossians, I'd like you to find chapter 1. And this morning I have the privilege to preach to you verses 15, 16, and 17. If you think about things the way I do, well, you might ought to see somebody. But I think about the New Testament in this way. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John start the New Testament. Those are the first Gospels. And then the story of the church unfolding after the birth of the Holy Spirit is the book of Acts. The Acts of the Holy Spirit, or historically some have called it the Acts of the Apostles. That's why it's called A-C-T-S, Acts. And then the rest of the New Testament is put in order in a rather logical way. After the book of Acts is every letter Paul wrote, and they're put in the order of length. So the longest letter Paul wrote is Romans, and of course it goes all the way to that very brief letter called Philemon. And then after Philemon, the rest of the New Testament are letters that other apostles wrote from length, being the longest of Hebrews, all the way to the end, except for the last book of the Bible, which of course is rather long, known as the Revelation. Now, the reason I tell you that is because once you get past the book of Acts, and then you get that long letter of Romans, then you get 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then there are four letters that are often talked about together because there's so many similarities. They are to four different churches, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. I remember it this way, Georgia Electric Power Company. Laugh at me if you won't. You'll always know now where Colossians is. You'd be like, Georgia Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, if you needed that to find the book of Colossians, that's just a little free sermon this morning. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Now, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae, Colossae, some pronounce it, from prison in Rome. Unlike some of the other churches, Paul did not plant this church. Most historians believe that in Ephesus, he led a man named Epaphras to Christ. Epaphras went back to his hometown, Colossus, and began a church. The problem arose when the report got to Paul that in Colossus, some of the people were teaching that Christ was not truly God. There was a fascination with the spiritual world, which in and of itself is not bad as long as you get to the right conclusion, but they were emptying out Christ of his significance and his meaning. So Colossians is a very brief book, but it is rich and ripe with Christology. That's the theology of Christ, who he is is. And that's, of course, what we're going to do this month. He is. You know, one of the things that's important about gifts is appreciating all that they are. Now, last month was my birthday. Few of you missed it. But um, in all honesty, my wife came to me and said, your gift is delayed, but it's coming. And I didn't know what she and the kids had gotten me. She says I'm difficult to shop for because if I see something I want, I just buy it. But she says, I've got something I think you'll like. 
I have for my entire adult life spent about $29 on a watch. I buy the Timex Ironman watch. I usually pick one up about every five years and I beat it to death. I'm rough on it. I'm one of these guys I don't have. I have some dress watches. I don't wear them. I never take my watch off, ever. I just never take it off because my life is to the minute. Everything in my life is scheduled, and it has to be that way for me to try to be what I need to be to everybody in my life. Many times I fail at that, but time is important to me. Well, I had put in my Amazon cart, which is my subtle way of dropping hints, I had put in my Amazon cart a Garmin GPS watch. It's kind of like an Apple watch for a dude. In, in other words, it syncs with your phone. And so they got me one. It's the nicest watch I've ever owned. I'm proud to say I'm, I'm wearing it this morning. I have no idea how to operate it. <laughs> I have transitioned in my life. I mean, there was a point there in my 20s and my 30s where older people in my family would hand me something electronic and say, DJ, I got my kid a Chromebook or an iPad, or can you get this working? And I, I'm by no means techie, but anybody with a little bit of sense can intuitively figure it out. And I realized when I received this watch, I've crossed over. I'm now totally dependent. I handed it to my 13-year-old. I said, Gray, I don't know how to get it off my heart rate. I think my heart rate's important, but nothing in my calendar is based on my heart rate. There's some things in my calendar I hope happens for my heart rate, you know what I mean? But the truth is, I, I need some help. And it took him a while. And so together, we have identified a few functions of this watch. I did learn something, though. The way it syncs with my phone is through Bluetooth. <laughs> the first Sunday I had this on a few weeks ago, I, I had to make sure I remembered to turn the Bluetooth off. Because every time one of my deer cameras gets a picture of this deer I'm trying to kill, I'm up here preaching, looking at camera one, camera one. And I'm thinking, gosh, I should have took today off. Camera one, camera one. I'm like, Lord, you, you're not going to be honored in this. I need to turn this off. And so just a few moments ago, after I did the announcements, before I came back and worship, I do worship with you. A lot of times I'm standing right there to spare you of my voice. But, but before I did that, I turned it off. Here's my point. I have a feeling over the next few months, as I have a little bit of time in the holidays to sit with some chocolate and some coffee and just sit and be, that I'm going to appreciate this even more. I already have it. I just don't know all that it is. When you get saved, you get all of him. The problem is we fail to appreciate all that he is. So for the next month, in a tiny power-packed paragraph, I'm going to take you to seminary. And together, you and I are going to appreciate all that he is. Now, this is a series that we could preach at Easter. We could preach it in June. We could preach it in October. But it's especially meaningful during the Advent, a word that simply means coming. That the Lord has come. And one of the things that happens in the Advent season is that we celebrate the very thing our children are learning about this morning. Even our toddlers today are being taught about the birth of Jesus. In addition to uh, gizmos and GPS, I, 
I'm a map nerd. I love to look. I, I can sit and just look at a globe. I, I like to look at maps. And, and I found this really cool website that took a globe and dropped in it all of the birthplaces of famous people. So, like, you go to it, and there's an image of North America, and you can see where everybody's born. If you look at South Carolina, they've got Sugar Ray Leonard, which I think was cool. And then near us is James Brown, Quentin Tarantino, and Abraham Lincoln. Talk about a contrast there. Elvis Presley. If you drop down to our went to seminary, Britney Spears was born not far from there in Louisiana. In fact, I preached at her aunt's church one time when I was in seminary. They took us to lunch afterwards. She said, you know, I'm Britney's cousin or second cousin. I said, oh, okay, that's cool. And she was just a little old Baptist lady. She says, now we love Brittany. <laughs> I go, okay, well, that's good. This is back when she first came out before things sort of got off track. And I said, okay, well, that's cool. Her songs are kind of catchy. I get, we don't agree with Brittany. <laughs> See, yes, ma'am, I, I understand. But if you go over to Europe and North America, you see all these famous people where they were born. Karl Marx, Adolf Hitler. If you look down at the bottom right, Osama bin Laden, Yasser Arafat. And then there, I circled it, is Jesus. Now, this is not a religious or spiritual website. And so, it's absolutely accurate to list Jesus because he is the most significant figure in human history. But what differentiates? differentiates him from Pablo Picasso, from Cristiano Ronaldo, from Karl Marx. What makes him different than Joseph Stalin? Just from a pure secular standpoint, you could say every one of those individuals deeply impacted history. When you open the history books of people, you're going to find these men and women. Well, it really goes down to his identity. And the fascinating thing is that all of those people's birthplace became famous after their life. The day they were born, there was no known significance. In fact, no one thought to commemorate the birthplace of Elvis Presley until he became Elvis Presley. No one would have noticed the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln until, of course, he served as the president of our country during a very important juncture and navigated the nation through a civil war. So people's life made their birthplace significant, but not so with Jesus. The birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, the commemoration of his birth, Christmas for us in our calendar, is significant not only because of what he would accomplish, but because of who he was the day he was born. And this is what Paul goes to in the book of Colossians. In fact, we begin reading in verse 15. He says these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. The very first thing that Paul wants to point out is that in light of his birth, 
He was, is, and always will be God. This is taught as the doctrine of incarnation. Now, it's real simple. Shouldn't shouldn't, uh, be real confusing once we understand what that means. Carne is the Latin word for flesh. That's why when we categorize animals, the animals that eat primarily other animals are called carnivores. So, in carne is in the flesh. That's where the doctrine of incarnation comes from. One of the greatest theologians of our day, Wayne Gruden, said it this way of this miracle. The incarnation is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. Far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing even than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God, so that infinite God became one person with finite man, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all the universe. In fact, every religion in our culture that looks like Christianity but is not Christianity denies the full deity of Jesus. Our friends and neighbors in the Church of Latter-day Saints, our friends and neighbors who identify themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses are not considered Bible-believing Christians according to our system of beliefs because they deny the full deity of Jesus. Yet look at verse 15. This is what Paul says. Paul says to the church in Colossus, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, some people say, well, you can make an image of something that is certainly not in its nature that which it is representing. Your phone has thousands of pictures on it, and those pictures are people you love and care about, things that you note, but those pictures in reality aren't the person. They are an image of the person. They are not the person. The whole idea of a picture is a depiction, a pictograph of someone that we care about. But the word image in the New Testament is also used for that which represents the exact nature of a God who is unseen. In fact, did you know the reason that Jesus came is because unless Jesus is born in the flesh, we would never see God. For God in his nature is spirit, not flesh and blood. He is invisible. That explains why he's omnipresent. He can be at all places at all times. Think about what Paul told 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul says, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So imagine attempting to have a personal relationship with a God that no one has ever seen. Now, I know there are Old Testament passages where God is described as a human. Things like the hand of God, the face of God, the presence of God. But you'll never find in the Old Testament a person who declares themselves to be God in the flesh. Why? Because it is at the miracle of Christmas that God took on flesh. So when the Lord walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, that was the pre-incarnate Christ. God in the spirit, but not God in the flesh. 
Now, we know this is true in this passage because he says he is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in the third verse of chapter 1. He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So the writer of Hebrews fleshes out what this means. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's not something an average man can do. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In the first chapter of the book of John, you know what the scripture says in the 18th verse? No one has ever seen God. Remember, the apostles agreed on the doctrine. They're not arguing about this. He's invisible. The only God who is at the Father's side, who's at the Father's right hand now, the risen Lord Jesus has made him known. Which is why later in the book of John, we see Jesus saying, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? He's talking to Philip, who's wanting to see the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Philip, show us the Father? So the celebration of Christmas is the celebration of God being in the flesh. Now, why does this matter? Because you live in the flesh. You die in the flesh. You're born in the flesh. You sin in the flesh. You worship in the flesh. You and I are not separate beings from our body. So much so that at the resurrection, our flesh, our body, will be glorified and join with us in eternity. There's nothing about Christian theology that teaches a spiritual world of mystery where we are undefined forces floating around for all of eternity. No, it is real. You will taste in heaven and smell in heaven and see in heaven and grasp one another in heaven. You will shake the hand of your neighbor in heaven. You will enjoy the fellowship of the brothers and sisters around the supper table in heaven with a real glorified body. But in order for you and I to experience heaven in the flesh, I needed heaven here in the flesh, which is Christ coming to us. This allowed for there to be one who was sufficient to take away the sins of the world on the cross. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But the incarnation is the building block for the death of Jesus in our place. The term, again, I think terms are important, is that he took our place. When one person takes another person's place, that's called a substitute. You always got excited when the teacher was out, right? <laughs> Substitutes here, right? So the substitute takes the place, and then when someone pays a debt for another person, they make atonement. So when Christ went to the cross, it's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ. A God, the God, in the flesh, took our place for our sins that we might inherit a real, tangible, touchable, seeable eternity in the flesh. Now, when you establish this, then you look at him and you see who he is in comparison, connection, and contrast to everything else we know. And this is the Christian life. Everything I know, every relationship, every decision, every blessing, every challenge, I look at it, and in regards of how I judge it, I look at it in comparison, in contrast, and in connection 
to Christ. So I can't get away from him. There's no area of my life I, I, I can separate from his influence. This is why we're not religious people. We're Christians. It's about him. And this is what Paul does when he launches into the second part of verse 15. Because in regards to everything else we know, first, he, he is preeminent. Look at the second phrase of verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now again, my neighbors and friends who would identify themselves as Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. Because they do not teach that Jesus is fully God. They teach that he was a created being. That he actually is a manifestation of the archangel Michael. It is a complete and total um, deviation from the New Testament identity of who Christ is. And arguably the Old Testament as well. And so they go to this passage and they say, see, he's firstborn. If he's always existed, how can he be firstborn? Well, their problem is the context of the passage. Because in verse 16, as we will see, uh, he's not only the firstborn of all creation, he made creation. You can't make what you have not arrived yet in being a part of. See, the word firstborn has two meanings in the New Testament. It has two meanings in our life. There is the firstborn literally. I have a firstborn child. I am a firstborn child. My younger brother and only sibling is certainly inferior to me. But I am a firstborn, which meaning I came first in order. I was reunited with my birthplace in this way when I was in college. I didn't have a lot of money, and so I framed houses on the weekends when it wasn't football season. And I sliced my thumb open one day, cutting some Tyvek. We were wrapping a house. We were finishing it up. We put the sheathing on. Sliced my thumb open pretty good. And, and uh, not a lot of compassion on the job site. The man that I worked for said, well, we're busy. You can go to the hospital if you want to. So I took a paper towel, wrapped it up. You can do miracles with a paper towel and electrical tape on a job site. So I wrapped my thumb up. The closest hospital was a hospital in Birmingham, a Catholic hospital called St. Vincent's. I went into the hospital. I'm probably 19 years old. I said, ma'am, I need somebody to sew my thumb up. And she said, okay. And so they were doing out the paperwork, and uh, they sewed my thumb up, and I was getting ready to go back to work. And she said, uh, have you ever been here before? I said, no, I, I've never been here. She says, well, give me your name. I gave her my name. She said, are you sure? I said, no. She said, I have a record of you being here on November the 14th, 1977. I go, oh, yeah, that's the day I was born here. <laughs> I hadn't been here since then, and I was not signing any paperwork then. And so she said, oh, okay, well, you've been here. I go, well, I didn't remember that, but now I do. <laughs> and I took three shots of BC powder and a Mountain Dew and went back to work. And that's what you did. That's how you raise men. And so, and so, you know, now if you got your thumbs cut, you'd have a post about it. There'd be a prayer chain. <laughs> Just tape it up and go back to work, you know. But anyway, when we think about his birthplace being Bethlehem, He's the firstborn. Firstborn also means he's the preeminent one. When it comes to all people who've ever existed, he's first. He's not the first person to be born. Many people were born before he was born that night in Bethlehem. But when God looks at all of humanity, it is the person of his son, the God-man, 
who is first above all. He's first in inheritance. He's first in primacy. He's preeminent. We know that David was a figure of Christ, a foreshadow. And there's a passage about David in the book of Psalms. You know what it says? And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But do you remember the story of David? Was David the firstborn in his family? (laughs) No. In fact, they went through all of his brothers. Remember that? And finally, Samuel said, is is there anybody else? I'm I'm looking for somebody else. He said, well, we got David, the baby. He's out in the fields. Go get him. And immediately he saw him and knew that he would be the king of Israel, the anointed one who would be a foreshadow, a representation, a type of a future David, a better David, a more righteous David. And so he was made the firstborn of the kingdom of God. He's first. He's preeminent. But he's not just preeminent. He's the producer. Look at verse 16. I love verse 16. For by him, prepositions matter, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him. An article came out about a week ago about Gen Z. Gen Z are those people born that are 13 to 25 years old right now. This is the latest generation that people are studying. Many of you may be a part of Gen Z. Some of you are so many letters removed from Gen Z, you forgot what generation you are in. But the Springtide Research Institute reported that Gen Z is actually not denying being religious at all. There's a lot of movements that says people don't believe in God anymore. People aren't searching for meaning in life anymore. They're so materialistic. They're so self-centered. They're so lost spiritually. Actually, way over half of the Gen Z questioned in this interview process claim to have had a sacred, life-changing, spiritual moment in their life. You drop that in our Baptist vernacular, we would talk about that moment when someone got saved. And we have all kinds of synonyms and analogies for it. Get saved, trust Christ, accept Christ, repent of your sin, turn your life over to the Lord, uh, be born again. We get all those terms from the Scriptures, so we rightfully use those terms to describe that moment where someone is enlightened. Now, we know how it's supposed to work according to the Scriptures. Many in Gen Z don't, but the point is there is this hunger for connection with the divine and with the spiritual. Now, when you dig a little bit deeper into the statistics of this article, 69% of those Gen Zs who said they have had some sacred moment, that's their terminology, not mine, said it had to do with nature. Now, now again, I absolutely think that being outside in the beauty of creation is a great place to connect with God. But without the gospel, people end up worshiping the creation and not the creator. They end up thinking that spirituality is somehow connected and derived from nature and not the God over nature. Now, if you have your Bible open to Colossians chapter 1, you might not need to do anything but look across the page. If you need to flip, you flip one page. Look at chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, Paul is 
taking aim at this false teaching that's emptying out the meaning of Christ. And he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The spirit of the mountain, the spirit of the tree, the spirit of the sunrise, and all these things that people sense some sort of supernatural element cannot be the basis of your life. And here's the reason why. You can know the one that made the sun, that carved the mountain, that hung the stars, that causes the breeze to blow, that created the diversity of every organism, all created for his glory, which is why Paul says in our home text in verse 16, make no bones about it, for by him all things were created. For by him all things were created. And when Paul hears in his own mind the word all things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he goes into defining what those are. Look at the second phrase of verse 16. In heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. But in these last days, talking about the days since the coming of Christ, he, God, has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir, first, remember firstborn, of all things, now watch, through him also created the world. So every famous person whose birthplace is commemorated, the birthplace is commemorated because of what they did after they were born. Friend, we celebrate Christmas because of who he was before Mary gave birth to him. By him all things were created. Think about how this works. If you admire art and you're standing in front of a beautiful painting, you don't want to meet the painting. You don't want an autograph from the painting. You'd love to meet the painter. If you read a book that's moving, you don't want to meet the book. You don't want the book to sign the cover. You don't want to meet the author of the book. If you hear a song so beautifully sung, you can loop the song. You can listen to it over and over and over again. But you don't want to meet the song. You don't want the autograph of the song you want to meet the singer, the artist, because there's something powerful in meeting the person who is the origin of the beauty you are enjoying. And this is what Paul is saying. He said, when we look at Christ, even as she laid him in a manger, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, this is the producer of the world. He's the creator. By him, all things were created. But look, watch this. He's not just the producer. He's the purpose. He's the reason all things were created. My favorite phrase in this entire passage is at the conclusion of verse 16. Now, to give it just context, let's read verse 16 again. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, here it comes, and for him. He's the reason we exist. He's not just the resource of our existence. He's the reason. 
Rhett, my seven-year-old, loves to worship. His favorite chorus is, you're worthy of it all. You remember those lyrics? You're worthy of it all. You're worthy of it all. And watch the prepositions. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. This is so rich it's hard to put into words. When he becomes your reason, then all of a sudden the Savior you met when you get saved becomes so much more as you recognize that everything in your life is happening according to his purpose for his glory, even the suffering. He's not just the song we sing. He's the reason we sing. This is not just his word. He is the word. Heaven is not just a place he's preparing for us. Heaven is being with him. And, and, and all of a sudden what happens around Christmas is Jesus goes from being a warm and fuzzy sentimental gift, a sacrificial lamb, to being the birth of my very purpose. My birth meant that God gave me life. His birth means that God gives me purpose. My birth gave me the opportunity to live. His birth gives me the opportunity to live forever. My birth opened up all kinds of human experiences for me, growing up to become from a boy to a man for the girls in the room who became women, to becoming a husband or a wife, a mother, a father, an employee, a, a graduate. And all those things will take place in your life, but every one of those things is given so much more meaning when he is your purpose. Why? Well, because fourth, he's preexistent. Look at the first phrase of verse 17. And he is before all things. Meaning before everything that was created was created for his glory, he existed. Of course, you know what John says about this in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, what does it say, church family? Was God. This is what ultimately became Jesus' death sentence in John 8, 58. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Remember, that is the name God gave Moses when Moses asked in Exodus. I seem to remember a series recently. Well, when I go back and tell Pharaoh that you have sent me for your people, and he asked me who you are, what is your name, God? He said, I am who I am. Every ear would have known that passage when Jesus said these words. He is self-identifying as the pre-existent second person of the Trinity, the Christ, the Son of God. And finally, he's the pillar. Look how it ends. He says these words. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
Christ is the reason your heart's beating right now. Christ is the reason the gravity in this room holds you to your seat. Christ is the reason that your body is miraculously taking oxygen, pulling it into your lungs, and your lungs are then turning it into oxygenated blood, which your heart pumps through to every cell of your body. And he's doing that for every human that's on earth today, and he did it for every human that's ever existed, but not just the humans. Every bird that falls in a field, he knows. The number of every hair on your head, and for some of you, that's getting easier to manage. But the number of every hair on your head, he is fully aware of. And you know what else he knows? He knew the day you were born. Nine months prior, he knew the moment you were conceived. And he knows the day he will call you home. So what are we worried about? What? Concerned? Sure. We're called to be concerned about situations that might require our attention. Burdened for people? Absolutely. Plenty of biblical foundation for that. But worry, anxiety, self-inflicted pressure, uneasiness, fear, they all melt away when we recognize who He is. So this Christmas... There's a lot I want you to do. Bless your neighbor, love your children, be kind. But perhaps the greatest way to begin the Advent is to just look upon Him, to adore Him, to ponder Him, to enjoy Him, to honor Him, to follow Him, and to share Him, to just, to just make it about Him. I seem to remember it being expressed this way. Come, let us adore him. Come, let us adore him. You know why? Because he's worthy of it all. For from him are all things. And to him are all things. He deserves the glory.